Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Basic is an iconic fashion label started in 2006 by Deborah Sams and Mary Lou Ryan. It had the simple intention of creating sophisticated clothing with organic cotton fabrics. This set up the framework for a successful label with sustainable thinking in its brand DNA. When we caught up with Deb, we unpacked the importance and challenges of producing clothes in Australia, making clothes to last, and their recent B Corp certification. Deb, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Could you please just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? Hi, thank you so much for having me on board. Um, So I'm Deborah Sams. I am the co-founder of BASIC. My business partner is Mary Lou Ryan. Um, We started the brand in 2006 and um, it's evolved since then. We started off with Organic Jersey. We developed a denim collection um, that we produced out of Japan and we now have a full ready-to-wear collection and um, eight retail stores So, and a, quite a big wholesale business. So um, the brand has evolved in those 17 years. Um, my current role is creative director. So I work across all things visual, um, very involved in the design and con- construction of our um, products. Um, our retail stores, the vision, um, the creative around our retail stores. And I work very closely with marketing on um, all those sort of brand elements and how we market our brand, Um, as well as being a co-founder and director. So there's also a lot of business um, things involved um, that I I do. So, yeah, that's what I do. Great. (laughs) Let's just talk a little bit about this, the start. So, so when you founded the company in 2006, you had a range of organic cotton pieces and that's what you were referring to when you said cotton jersey. Could you tell us a little bit about the beginning of the business and why you chose to use the cotton yarn? So, um, so the premise behind the brand when we started was um, we wanted to recreate a really beautiful, um, simple, luxurious jersey line um, that we felt was really, there was a gap in the market, particularly in Australia. We used to travel a lot, Lou and I together, and we really, um, loved that sort of deconstructed Jersey that we used to buy from brands like Andrew Mollemeister and Helmut Lang, um, those beautiful, super fine jerseys that you'd pay, you know, $300 for a t-shirt. You had to dry clean it. Um, that it, it just, you know, it didn't make sense to us that you couldn't just buy a really beautiful, super fine T-shirt and put it in your machine and wash it and wear it every day and and it had longevity. Um, and at that time in fashion, there was a lot of very noisy branded um, brands in the market and we felt that there was an opportunity to create something um, very simple, very luxurious to slot in around those brands. Um, but we always wanted it to be sitting high end in the market. We wanted, we always knew that we wanted to spend our money on, you know, creating, finding the most beautiful yarns um, that were more expensive, that you could create a T-shirt that lasts you 10 years. So um, that was sort of the the idea behind the brand and um, we had an opportunity to work with a huge fabric supplier that um, supplied bonds back in the day. Um, Lou had a great connection with um, one of the head guys there and um, we were lucky enough for them to actually let us into their archive and go through all their, you know, I don't know how old the brand is, but over 100 years worth of um, jerseys that they had knitted and actually design our own unique jersey, which was almost unheard of because this um, company had two customers, so they had Bonds and they had Basic. <laughs> and Basic, we had no customers, so they I don't know, they had this faith in Lou and myself that we were going to create this beautiful jersey line and um, they let us in. They opened their doors to us and um, so that was such an incredible situation and 
Um, I mean, quite funny at the same time because it was in Wentworthville and Lou and I would drive out there two hours and it was just like another world. It was like you're in this sort of laboratory and, you know, so we created um, our super fine jersey and we created our single jersey. So we created two qualities um, and we also had the offer of we could use organic cotton. And at the time, no one in the market was producing organic cotton jersey and um, it wasn't even a point of discussion. It wasn't, it wasn't actually almost relevant at that time. People didn't talk about organic cotton jersey or organic clothing. Um, but we just felt, wow, this is such an opportunity. We have a choice of, you know, using a yarn that is, you know, better, better on the planet um, we didn't know about carbon footprints and that sort of thing, but we also knew about pesticides and um, less water usage and all the benefits of using organic cotton. We also felt that it was healthier for people and the planet and we jumped on board with the organic cotton really early, like for our first collection. So that almost, I felt like we were lucky in that sense that we were given that opportunity and we had the sense to take it because it was a lot harder to source. Um, it was a bit more expensive. There were definitely a lot more complications using it, but um, I don't know, we just went for it and thought we'll, we'll make it work however we do it. You know, there were all sorts of problems, but we worked through them and... We're still using the same cotton today, so the same yarn. Could you just talk a little bit about what a jersey fabric is? Okay, so a jersey is, um, it's a knitted fabric. So it's basically, it has stretch in it. So a woven fabric has no give in it unless you put elastine in it. So a woven fabric might be like a poplin. A jersey, you can, you can knit wool jerseys. You can knit jersey in lots of different yarns but it's the way it's knitted and mm. the construction so it actually stretches I see. I see. yeah and there's a lot of give um in our t-shirts as you've probably experienced um you can stretch them out and then you wash them and they go back into shape how important was the was the partnership between you two from the start i think it's extremely important i mean lou and i had worked together in a few different other companies before. We had a very similar vision. Um, we were very aligned on our aesthetic and what we both loved and where we thought we wanted to take the brand. Um, it was almost sort of ingrained with us. And I think that between the two of us, we, we both have a really different skill set. So we were able to, you know, align together and just have this great um, partnership where we could both, you know, from a creative point of view, Lou's also very creative and I do understand her part of the business, but, you know, we can actually bounce off each other. We can support each other and support the business with um, being doing very separate things in it. So, it's, yeah, super important. You started the business from a more entrepreneurial position, seeing a gap in the market rather than just a, a general desire to say make make a particular sort of menswear brand or, or, or you know, a swimwear brand. How has that starting point influenced you? Look, I think it was definitely something that we started with and it was it was quite natural that we fell into the brand that we are today. I mean, I think we have a very strong vision and we're very focused on the brand DNA and what feels very natural to us and what feels right and what doesn't. And particularly in terms of design, like if something doesn't feel authentic and right to basic, we tend not to do it. And, you know, we may have missed opportunities and our brand could have possibly been bigger, but I suppose... It was really important for us to have our clear brand identity and um, I think as you grow a business, like we're 17 years in now, I think the market challenges you in so many ways and you do definitely have to ride the different waves of, you know, economic forces, um, social forces. I think we've had a lot of luck come our way at different times um, in terms of, 
you know, COVID, when we're in lockdown, everyone was buying casual clothing. So basic, you know, had a great time during that time because of that. And then, you know, there's a shift away from more casual dressing currently and it's like, okay, so basic can pivot and do more tailoring and we can do more ready to wear. The jersey's still an important component of the brand, but there is a shift. So we've been actually able to ride the different waves of the marketplace and um, evolve. But I think there are times where if you aren't super considered and super focused, you can often lose track of what's happening in the market because you're just trying to get your job done. You're, you're in the day-to-day grind. And I think that that has definitely, like I could say for me, that that happens because you're just not out and about. And um, I think there's a lot of brands now that do what we do. And I think there was a gap in 2006, mm, but mm. we're now in a very flooded market mm. of sustainable timeless, like, you know, the same terminology, the Mm. same concept, using the Italian fabrics, like it's all very similar. So rather than trying to move on from that, it's like we actually have to position ourselves as the one of the, you know, original brands that and, and really just maintain that vision and be the best in what we do. So when Basic started, there wasn't much pared back, sophisticated, understated fashion around. Do you think basic was part of a move towards a more sophisticated appreciation of fashion in Australia? And what, and if, if that's the case, why do you think you were able to, to preempt that transition before other brands? Oh, I think it was just an instinct that, you know, it was our instinct. We, it was what, where we felt that we had the way we wanted to dress. Um, it was sort of like there was that designer, that higher end, those brands in those boutiques, or there was fast fashion and big brands, but there wasn't that in-between Australian designer brands. I don't know. It's hard to articulate, but I I think it was just a very natural um, direction for us to go because that's, it really reflects who we are, Lou and I, um, how we dress and um, our, the way we sort of live as well. And, and I think, you know, we're predominantly women's wear. The men's wear is super important to us as well. We like to dress our guys and we love to see them wearing basic. Um, but it just resonated with a lot of women because I, I think we made life easy for them it's part of the you know our dna Mm. that utilitarian purposeful wearable you don't have to think twice about putting an outfit together in the morning it's they're all the things that i think resonated with women and our customers and which is why the brand was able to grow because they could keep coming back knowing that they buy something three seasons ago it it's not going to be you know out it's still they can wear it with three seasons ahead and it's still relevant mm. and, yeah. <laughs> We've heard um, both yourself and Mary Lou refer to um, Basic as being a quiet brand and I know that you're tucked a little bit, tucked away a little bit in, in Avalon as, as opposed to being in, in sort of the, in the scene in Sydney or, or Melbourne. Could you yeah. talk a little bit about being a, a quiet brand and why you've, or, or maybe how you've managed to stay out of the scene and if that's important? Look, I think we're, we're private people, Lou and myself. Um, we've always wanted the product to talk to the brand, not us. It, it's never been about Lou and I being these superstar designers, face of the brand. It's always been about the product speaking for the brand and people finding our brand through product. And that sort of gets you to a certain point. And then as you try try and grow your business and try to acquire new customers, there has to be a moment where you do open the door a little bit. And we, we definitely have, um, you know, allowed ourselves to be, you know, a little bit more prominent in the industry. I think definitely with the whole sustainability um, movement and, you know, basic being at the forefront of that, that has 
put the brand back into the spotlight. Um, I think, you know, yeah, it's never been about Lou or myself. It's actually been about the product and about what we do speaking for us. Did you want to be an iconic Australian brand when you started? Yes. Yeah, we did. And why was that important? It's just a good story. It just feels good. I think um, being, you know, produced in Australia is something that everyone is trying to do now. You know, when we were trying to do it, everyone was producing in China. We had factories that were about to go broke that we helped rebuild and they now have, you know, flourished and... I think that was that was absolutely um, so important for us to support local industry in 2006. Um, we had good relationships with factories um, within Sydney and Melbourne, um, and it just I think there's been other good brands along the way that were sort of iconic brands and then took their production offshore and sort of diluted that feel-good sort of Australian brand feeling. And I don't know, it, it just, I think our brand is so unique and it is so uniquely Australian and um, there isn't really anything like it. And, um, yeah, to have a to have a culture that supports local industry and to create a brand that, you know, has a legacy that we can talk about and be proud of is I think Australians love that, don't they? (laughs) Absolutely. How have you managed to keep the production in Australia? Um, Look, it's really hard producing in Australia, um, but that's all we know. We've done it from day one and it's ingrained in our um, business model. And I think to work back the other way would be really hard because you create a price structure from your original cost and um, to then try and compete with making something offshore. Also, you know, you need to create an um, infrastructure internally to support local production, like local manufacturing. We have a big team that produces our product, like to create a, to make a T-shirt, we buy the yarn, we knit the yarn, we cut the fabric, we make the garment, we then wash it and it goes back for trimming. Like it's a six, seven step process before you've even got a T-shirt. So to actually produce that garment compared to producing offshore is chalk and cheese, you know what I mean? So I think for young designers starting out, if you can't get your foot in the door into the factories in Australia, and I know it's hard because we still struggle with capacity. A lot of factories sadly have um, gone by the wayside. Um, There hasn't been succession planning um, within those factories and those older makers haven't had the people to train and pass on, which is part of what the AFC are trying to do to um, invest back into the local industry. Um, We're lucky that we have got those relationships with those factories now, but for some of those smaller designers, getting back in those factories is hard. Um, And also, yeah, just from a price point of view, it is. It's really, it is expensive. And we've often had people say, your product's expensive, but it's like, well, it's going back to like what is the true cost of making a garment? That is what it costs, you know, that you, you go through all those processes and you're buying a T-shirt that's $100 but you may get 10 years out of it if you don't put it in a washing machine with a pair of jeans and five towels. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you care for it properly, you will and it will get better with age and you will love it more and, and all that. So, um, yeah, it's it's. It's really, really hard to produce locally, but um, I think it's something we're committed to and, you know, we've got the structure to support it. So I think for, you know, upcoming new designers, it's very, very hard. Just off the back of that question, because your cotton jersey T-shirt hasn't really changed price much from Mm. 17 years ago. Yeah. How have you managed to do, like, is other areas of the business balance that out or is it just efficiency in production? Um, we've incrementally made price changes. I think that they started at 
80 and they're probably average 100, 110 now, um, depending on the size of them, like depending on their yield. Um, look, we, we manage it, yes. Um, we probably are not making the margins that other brands would be making offshore. Um, so, you know, yes, you can you can make it in other areas or you can't. Like we, we're not a, a hugely high margin brand. Like we're not making the margins that I'm sure a lot of brands are making offshore. But for us, you know, balancing profit, profit with purpose and producing a product that's actually we're really proud of and that I don't know, it just feels better and I think Lou and I have never been one to make decisions to make money. It's been more about the integrity of producing really beautiful products. And, you know, we probably could be bigger and more successful if we'd maybe thought a bit more commercially about the way we do things. Could you unpack that term you used just before, true cost, a little bit? Well, I think that that term incorporates the true cost of, you know, what your environmental impact is to, you know, the cradle to grave, that whole process in between making a garment and um, making sure that, you know, you're paying your workers correctly, that um, the way that you're, you're producing yarns, that you're doing it in the most, you know, I suppose planet-friendly way um, and also um, everyone within that supply chain is being paid and looked after in the way that they should. So that is how I would define true cost. And do you have um, a good idea of what's going on in the workplaces of the suppliers that you use and, and their own environmental and sustainability practices? Absolutely. I mean, to go through B Corp, all those certifications and all those audits have to be done um, and there's very strict compliance around that. So, yes. Could you take us through the experience of walking into a basic store? So um, I've always wanted our stores to be really warm and welcoming and almost like walking into a residential space. So um, a lot of, in particularly the newer stores, reflect what it would be like going into my home. Like it's very tactile, it's very natural. Um, it's all about the um, the materials that we use. So using very natural fibres, using, you know, beautiful natural timbers and stones. Um, it's about light. Um, there has to be... Um, that whole spatial sort of awareness. So having enough space, but also being a retail store. So striking that balance between having enough product in there, but also having enough space that you feel that you can breathe and it's just not rammed with racks. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think people feel generally at ease in our stores. We always... um, make sure that there's like really comfortable seating so people can relax and it is, we are part of a community. We're trying to create um, stores that support the local communities that people can come in and if they don't want to shop, they can chat to the staff, they can just be part of that, you know, environment. So I think they're just, they're easy, they're natural, they're inviting, um, and quite fresh. I think there's a fresh, good energy about our stores. Um, Could you yeah. talk a little bit about some of the textures and, um, you know, the colour palette and why you made some of those decisions? So for Melbourne, for High Street, the new store, um, clearly we're, we're a Sydney brand and um, I, I wanted to make sure that um, the store felt like basic but it had more of a sort of moodier feel. I suppose I, I think that generally you guys can speak to this point better than I can, but um, there is a difference between design in Sydney and Melbourne in interiors and I think there's probably, you know, it's a little darker, it's a little more moody. Um, 
I wanted to play with some, like I, I love that sort of green, I love that deep green. I feel like there's a calmness and there's a groundedness about it. So I wanted to incorporate that um, and particularly in certain fabrications, like that sort of deep green in that linen is so just rich and beautiful the way that dies up. Um, also the layering of the, you know, the sisal and then the, the kilns and, and the rugs and the, the boucle on the sofas, like making sure everything was quite textured and quite almost 70s but in a modern way, sort of in a very minimal sort of way. So there was definitely a like a um, vision for, for Melbourne to be more sort of in line with, you know, Melbourne homes and the way people live in Melbourne. On the back of the store, I know that um, I think in Sydney you have a local Sydney artist in the, a painting in that store. Could you talk a little bit about the artists you choose? So... We want to support local artists and local brands, you know, between working with Jardin, um, Armadillo Rugs. Um, there's such incredible, beautiful brands and why would we not want to um, align and collaborate with them? So, um, yeah, it's important for us to, to really incorporate that local um, collaboration with other creative brands. Could you talk a little bit about the brand DNA, uh, about this idea of wearable functional items? Yeah, so I think Basic's always been a utilitarian brand. It's always been about, um, for me, designing beautiful, luxurious, but very purposeful, useful pieces of clothing. Um, and, you know, each collection there is that element of that utilitarian sort of design throughout um, and I and it evolves every season. Um, however, I think, you know, that brand DNA and actually creating clothing that is not going to sit in someone's wardrobe for one occasion but it's actually something that can be worn across multiple different purposes, whether it's work, whether it's, you know, going to weddings, whether it's everyday um I think um, it's really important, particularly for the sustainability side of the brand as well, that the clothing is purposeful and wearable and useful um, and it also can be washed and laundered and not fall apart. Um, and then, you know, the other part of the brand DNA is, is really in the design and construction. So a simple T-shirt has a lot of thought and design behind it, whether it, you know, is the way we construct the garment, what fabric we use, the way it's um, laundered. You know, we wash all our jersey for the customer. So we wash and tumble dry it prior to selling it to the customer. So it's all the shrinkage is taken out. So when you buy a t-shirt, there's nothing worse than like buying the size that fits you and then taking it home, washing it. You want to if not hang things on the line, sometimes you can't. So you put it in the dryer and it's three times smaller. So there's a lot of thought that actually goes on behind designing very simple things. Um, there's also a lot of thought in the construction of the garment. So if you turn a T-shirt or a pair of jeans or pants inside out, it's as beautiful on the inside as it is on the outside. But they're all very subtle, subtle details that, you know, people... I think that's what people unconsciously love about the brand. They probably don't know those things, but, you know, they're all the things that the stories behind each product that actually take a lot of time to put them back together and to produce them. Like we'll take a pant to a maker and they're like, it's way too complicated. And we're like, but it's just a simple tailored pant. And they're like, but it's the waistband, but it's this, that it's that. It's the way we construct our garments that, we probably don't talk about enough, but it's actually how they're constructed and all the design elements that go into that pant um, that make it really beautiful, but it's also really simple on the other hand. So part of the DNA are those little details. I mean, we're very big with our branding, but we're not at the same time. So things like chain stitch details, contrast stitching, con contrast 
you know, sort of panels on the back of yokes and things like that. There are the things that we put into, you know, a simple shirt that someone might, again, unconsciously like be drawn to, but they probably don't go through it with a fine tooth comb and marvel at it. But that's the stuff for us that is part of the DNA. Um, also fabrication. Um, you know, I think brands can be very one-dimensional one purchasing online, but when you actually go into a basic store and you see the fabrics that we actually use, I think that's a huge part of our brand DNA and a huge part of what makes us quite unique, I think, and different to our competitors because we're, we're buying, you know, producing fabrics in Australia, we're, we're de developing and designing fabrics out of Italy, Japan, like using the best quality materials for the foundation of each product. And um, so that's really a huge part of the DNA as well. You achieved the B Corp certification in 2022. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Could you tell us what um, what that process was like, and and perhaps just a little a little overview yeah. of, of what being yeah. a B Corp certified company means? First and foremost, we didn't have to really change our business model for B Corp certification. Um, the big part of what we had to do was audit and um, go through a an evaluation. I think there was over 300 questions that had to be answered um, to get that certification. So those five key areas were govern governance, workers, community, environment and customers. And you have to meet that criteria um, and you are given certain amount of points to actually be accredited B Corp. So um, I suppose, you know, B Corp movement aligns um, with the basic ethos to treat the planet with respect and um, also the people we work with and the communities that we work with. Um, but that's something that I suppose we've been doing since we started um, supporting local industry, using sustainable fabrications, supporting communities um, with different fundraising activities and also just the way we run our business. So there has been, you know, adjustments that we have had to make along the way, but ultimately a lot of it we were already doing, so. Was there anything yeah. that was particularly challenging? I think definitely some of the um, measuring of, you know, like our carbon footprint and, and some of that um, auditing has been very hard because a lot of, you know, factories and places aren't really open to giving information. And so I think it has been actually really challenging um, getting, pulling all that information um, and that historical information and calculating different metrics and things. Um, but there is a really great, um, there are great companies that you can work with that support that process and guide you. And so. A lot of what you did like when you started the business, a lot of this, a lot of the decisions that you made are like, and, and now are based on your intuition. Yeah. And that's naturally aligned with some, like some fundamental sustainability yeah. practices, yeah. which yeah. I just, I just, I think is really, I think it's enabled you guys to just keep making really good, yeah, big, yeah. big, really good decisions yeah. um, that work for you. And I think yeah. other brands have to work a lot harder. Oh yeah. Because they're not started in the same no. way. They have to actually unpick and put back together their whole business models, mm. a lot of brands, and it's probably not possible mm. for a lot of, mm. or to the degree that we do it, you know. And it's such an evolving area, isn't it? I mean, it's just such a moving target and yeah. even the different organisations that you might think that you want to become a member of, in six months' time don't mean anything. And so I think the space is moving extremely quickly. Um, but, you know, I think there's also the simple fundamentals, like you were saying about, you know, supporting local industry, doing the right things the right way. It starts with, you know, the yarns and the, you know, the way that you're actually producing those yarns and what impact you're having on the soil 
And then those other things along the way are not, I wouldn't say easy, but they are a lot more easy to um, to shift, like things like, um, you know, transitioning a factory from electrical power to solar power. Like those things are, are quite achievable and we have done a lot of that along the way. We're also trying to get better at what we do and it's it's a really costly thing to do. So it's it's balancing purpose and profit, you know, at the same time. You don't want to do so much that you actually have no profit at the end and you can't continue to operate. So it's that balance and finding that balance too. With so many more brands um, being vocal about their own sustainable contributions to the planet, mm. Mm. do you have you guys felt like you've needed to shift or do anything differently or do you just keep just keep making the same sorts of incremental changes that you've always made? I think it's probably the communication piece because it's become a very generic term, sustainability. Um, it's a very, you know, open to interpretation um, and a lot of people are throwing it around and I think it's just being very conscious and considered to the way you communicate that messaging. Um, we probably have probably quietened down a little um, with our communication just because you don't want to sound like everyone else. You don't want to be all in the ring competing for the same thing. It's also nice to do things in the right way but not always be batting on about it, how good you are. You know what I mean? Like I, I think it's it's not about using it as a marketing Thing. It's about actually just doing things the right way and communicating how you do it. But there's a lot of, yeah, it's become a very um, crowded, um, vocal, generic sort of space. And I think there's a lot of laws that are coming in now about greenwashing and um, what you can and can't say, which is probably going to change things a little. Yes. Have you noticed a shift in your customer base over the last 17 years? And if so, like... A- I suppose, from a more educated point of view? Definitely since post-COVID, people are definitely more considered about their spend and where they're putting their money. And the younger generation are a lot more um, educated and interested in what they're buying and what those companies stand for. Um, Our customer has definitely grown with us um, and we're definitely sort of focused on maintaining that customer but also understanding what that new customer looks like and and, and bringing on, you know, that younger customer as well. Um, but, yeah, our customer, you know, 10 years ago even were not interested in a product that's Australian-made or organic. They, well, sorry, I'm speaking broadly. I'm sure some were, but most of them probably wouldn't have turned a garment inside out and wondered where things were made. I think it's definitely, definitely become a far more prominent conversation, particularly with climate change and what's happening. You know, it's in our faces. We're experiencing it every day. You know, the droughts, the flooding, the extreme weather. And the fires. The fires. We, we actually... It's here and people are now a lot more aware of it and I think, you know, governments are starting to make changes and and it's it's a lot more of a conversation. So there's a lot more um, interest for sure um, but I couldn't say how much and I couldn't really, we, that's not a metric that we really understand yet. Has customer feedback been an important parameter for shaping the brand? Yeah, I mean, we're lucky that we have our eight retail stores who are really the eyes and ears um, and a lot of feedback comes through every week from customers. So there's definitely, um, yeah, we do listen to that and it does to a point, um, I mean, you want to give people what they want, don't you? So we, we do try and, you know, I'm working 12 months out, that's the only thing, so... I design mm, mm. collection like I'm designing next year, mm. the end of next year, and a lot changes in that time um, with what people want. You know, at one point no one wants colour and all of a sudden people are buying bright orange and pink at the moment in our stores, even in Melbourne, you know. But, like, 
six, eight months ago, everyone was worried about that. So it changes. Um, but I'd like to say more so that that will be part of our strategy and, and particularly as we grow the brand, like really um, having more information around um, what customers want from us and what they might be missing and, you know, some I, you know our fits are quite unique. I think there's been feedback around our fits being, you know, um, a bit tricky sometimes, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the more that we grow and the more sophisticated we get with our um, reporting, the more information starting to filter back to design. And um, But, you know, I, I, I design very intuitively and I'm very connected to, you know, our, our customers. So I'm, I feel like, you know, the success of the brand is a direct relation to us giving our customer what they want. Yeah. Do you ever feel the need or do you ever um, try something new and have it either go really well or really bad? Absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to keep trying new things and evolving and um, not and surprising. Um, often things that I really believe in and love and think are fantastic, like they might not sell. And it's like, wow, you know, mm. it's just mm. different wavelengths and different. I suppose I'm I'm thinking more of a high level of design and um, then there's the everyday reality of really what works. So it's marrying the two. So having that pointy end of the brand and that sort of aspirational, fun, experimental part of the brand and then also having the meat and potatoes yes, yeah, <laughs> and the part yeah. of the brand that really supports the the general like the business the business yeah. yeah so it's a it's a, it's often a balance and it's important like I stay grounded and and across the reality of um what people want <laughs> we find things similar you know Do we you? when we just when we're doing houses we often yeah want to push the boundaries a little bit yeah. and create oh. more interesting spaces that might be a bit more challenging and yeah. it's usually very hard to get it across the line. Yeah, because people are thinking about their families and, you know, practicality and absolutely yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a constant push and pull but it's a good one. I think it's healthy to have that. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I I feel, feel your pain. <laughs> Often people also see things in previous projects we've done. This and is then the saying, I want that bit, that bit, yeah, that bit, and that yeah. bit. Mm. And it's hard to make them all work together. And I think as a designer, you're actually looking forward, you're not looking back. Mm. But historically, salespeople, customers, they're always looking back at what's worked, what hasn't. Mm. And we're looking at what's happening in two, three years' time or where we want to take things and where we see it heading. Yeah. And so, there's that gap between the two I think that can be really challenging at times when you're trying to balance that commerciality and that vision. I'm interested in hearing a little bit about the fabrics that come offshore. Yes. So the denim from Japan yep. and also the um, Italian fabrics. I'm interested to hear how the local community supported overseas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, we work with... Um, probably about five or six different mills out of Italy. Um, I go over every year and um, work back with individual mills and either buy fabrications that they've already developed or develop unique fabrications for basic. And um, I suppose since um, we've had this real focus on sustainability, we've also had to redevelop fabrications with sustainable yarns and sort of looking deeper into that process. Um, gratefully, um, Italy are very ahead with um, the way that they actually manufacture. Um, mm. They've got very strict compliances around chemicals, um, water usage. Um, they also have access to lots of sustainable yarns, although everyone is trying to access the same yarn. So there is definitely a supply chain is issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, our, 
ready-to-wear collection consists of, um, you know, some of those really high-end fabrications from Italy. Um, we also source out of Portugal and Spain um, and there's some really fabulous sustainable meals there. Um, and then Japan is something that, you know, Japan's been a place that we have always visited from an inspiration point of view. Um, and we started working with a Japanese um, denim maker um, probably about 15 years ago who was introduced to us through a fabric supplier in Australia. And um, we were lucky enough to be able to produce our denim out of a very small um, factory. Uh, I think they had about 15 machinists and it was like a third, fourth generation factory. And then the denim that we were buying, um, you know, we've recently just converted to buying organic denim um, and the way that the it's all laundered and everything, the water wastage is, was then used to fertilise um, rose farms. And so... Wow. Yeah. Yeah. We've actually since moved our production to Australia because we were finding um, it just cost prohibitive producing in um, Japan as much as we love the quality of the product. Um, we wanted to take the denim to the wider market. So excitingly, we're now producing our denim out of Melbourne. Well done. So cool. we're back to Australia. We're using our beautiful Japanese denim that with the organic denim that we used for our Japanese made denim. Um, so how do you call it Japanese denim? What's the... So it's actually made in Japan. So the actual denim is actually woven in Japan. I see, I see, yeah. sure. And then yeah. Um, it all gets finished in Australia, in, in Japan, and then they ship the denim to Australia. The jeans are cut, sewn, and then laundered in Great. Australia. So, yeah, so we're back to supporting local industry and um, it's really exciting because um, because of the price issue, we could only sell the denim, the Japanese denim in our own stores, but the wider market wanted it and now we'll be able to you know, resource in Australia and actually open it to our wholesale accounts. So I see, I see. That will be um, first delivery, I think, pre-collection, so February, March next year. So it's really, really exciting. Super exciting. Yeah. Do you, does the wholesale business, does that make as much profit as the fashion business to, to the general public? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's a really important part of our, um, our business model. It's less expensive to run. You don't have the layers of, you know, infrastructure and people and store costs and inventory and, you know, um, we have some really great major partners, David Jones, the iconic. We've got, you know, I think over 50 boutiques in the country. We stock Bergdorf Goodman in New York and some big um, online stores. So, you know, the wholesale business is super important. Um Obviously, we don't have as much control over those businesses. So you do have those peaks and troughs where, you know, it might be economic factors like interest rates go up and that affects your wholesale business more than your retail because, you know, the buyers might be buying less because the stores aren't as busy. So we don't have the control over the wholesale business that we wish we did, <laughs> the, the way we do over our retail Um but it's absolutely a huge part of, I think it's a third of our business. Where do you see BASIC going in the future and is there a succession plan in place? Um, so we sort of work in five-year plans. Like we don't, um, yeah, I mean we don't really know what the plan is in 10 years' time. It's sort of we want to get to a certain number of turnover I see. Yeah. within a certain amount of years. Um, we also want to, you know, um, you know, Lou and I, it's funny because we've tried to sort of create teams around us and develop teams so we're less involved in the business um, but it just, I don't know, for some reason, I don't know if it's just an unrealistic plan but I think in a creative business and we're still, I would consider a small business. We have a hundred employees, but 
it's still, we're not a corporation and the business still greatly relies on us, but it would be great to get to a point where we could still be involved at a high level and the plan is to have our teams really be able to run the business and it be less reliant on us to be making decisions that may, you know, stop productivity and cause bottlenecks and, like, my plan for my team is, and I'm sure Lou's is as well, to get our teams up to speed so that we're just directing on a certain level a lot more creatively. I'd like to be more involved in growing the business and working alongside our CEO and actually the development of, of the growth of the business and less involved in the detail of does that T-shirt need a pocket on it or not? You know what I mean? So the plan is um, definitely in the next sort of 18 months to get my team to that point where it's way less reliant on me and I can actually work on acquisition and growth and where we actually take the brand. Um, And then after that, um, I don't know. I I don't know. I mean, I, I, I definitely... Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's probably a conversation um, we could have next time. (laughs) Um, But right now it's sort of about the next sort of few years and um, we just see where we we go. But there's no sort of big plans to, like, change things or, um, you know, go to the AXX and float the company. It's, It's definitely, I think, to be remained privately owned is really important to us and um, to maintain the integrity and also grow and acquire new customers. Um, and that's sort of, yeah, the next five-year plan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been um, lovely talking to you guys and, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Make Good. This podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. If you'd like to know more about BASIC, check out their Instagram, their website, or drop into one of a number of stores in Victoria, New South Wales, and Queensland. Queensland.